History records that on July the 19th in 64 AD, a fire broke out in Rome. It lasted about six days, then it appeared to go out, but then it reignited and it lasted three more days. It destroyed about 70% of the city of Rome at that time. Many historians, both secular and Christian historians, believe that the Roman ruler at that time, a madman that most of you have heard of, a complete total narcissist by the name of Nero, may have actually started the fire. No one knows for sure, but that's the belief of many historians. He did it so that, if he did it, he did it so that he could rebuild the city of Rome to his own liking, particularly build a huge palace, kind of a monument to himself, in a lot of the rubble that had formerly been the homes of other Romans. Nero managed to blame the fire on a rather obscure religious sect that was growing rapidly, though, called Christians. And in the years that followed, he would feed to the lions and light as human torches, literally, to light his garden party as he impaled them on stakes, hundreds, maybe even thousands of Christians in the city of Rome itself and throughout the empire, others were killed. Sometime after that great Roman fire, Nero had arrested the most influential Christian at that time in the Roman Empire, a heavy-duty intellect, a guy that probably spoke three to five languages fluently that you all know where I'm going with this and who I'm talking about, a Roman citizen, in fact, a leading Jewish scholar, a church planter, a writer, an incredible influencer for the Christian cause, a guy by the name of Paul. Christian tradition tells us that sometime between 64 and 67 AD, in those years following that Roman fire during the great persecution of Christians under Nero, Paul was beheaded. A few years earlier, before the fire broke out, while he was still under another house arrest in Rome, one that he would ultimately be freed from and allowed his freedom for several years before he was arrested again and eventually executed, not knowing that he would be released the first time and allowed to continue his work, he wrote a letter to a group of Christians in an area of the Roman Empire referred to as Macedonia in a city called Philippi. And that's the book of the Bible, so to speak. We're studying a simple letter from prison. So turn with me now, and I'm going to pick it up where Lee left off. In Philippians 1, I'm going to pick up the last part of verse 18 that Lee covered. In review of Lee's sermon, it was a great sermon. If you missed it last week, I encourage you to go listen to it online. Go to our website. He talked about joy that came even in the midst of Paul being confined and chained to a Roman guard, pretty much under house arrest, but still chained to a Roman guard in confinement, and yet he was rejoicing in his confinement, not feeling sorry for himself, not having a persecution complex about himself, and he's writing letters to encourage other Christians, and he talks about the motivation for that joy, and Lee talked about that last week. It was basically Christ and his relationship with Christ and the spread of the gospel even though he was in chains. So let's pick it up at 18b. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, says Paul. And he's going to expound a little bit more on why he's getting to rejoice. 
He said, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. Let me stop right there because I was astounded when I read the commentaries this week. The Greek is very clear, and I don't know Greek, but I can read commentaries in English to people who do know Greek. And they all said the same thing, that there, there was a connection, but in this passage, what, what Paul is saying here is, because of your prayers, I have literally more of the power of the Holy Spirit and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in my life than I would have had if you had not been praying for me. There is a cause and effect relationship right here in the prayers of the saints and the way Paul feels and the, what, what he's experiencing of the Holy Spirit. That's incredibly interesting and a powerful theological and practical statement about the power of prayer. More on that in a few minutes. What has happened to me, he says, I know will turn out for my deliverance. Actually, he's quoting Job. We'll look at that in a few minutes. Deliverance here could obviously mean one of two things. <laughs> Death, which is the ultimate deliverance if you're a Christ follower, to be with Christ, or to be released from prison simply out to do ministry. Verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. Now, Ashamed doesn't mean what you and I think of when we, when we say ashamed. He's talking about something else. See it in a minute. Have confidence in. But we'll have sufficient courage so that now as always, no matter what happens to me, no matter what I undergo, Christ will be exalted in my body. The word actually means magnified. Paul said, I want my life. This ought to be our ambition to be a magnifying glass that people can look through and see Christ more clearly. It's like before they had glasses and people had to look through magnifying glasses when they got old like me to read. I'd have to do that if I didn't have reading glasses on. And, and he's saying, I want my life to be like that. People can't see Christ clearly, but because of me, they can see him better by the way I live out, what I like to call the ethos of heaven. The values that Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount and in other sermons. I want my life to magnify Christ. Verse 21. Did I finish verse 20? Yeah. Whether by my life or by my death. Verse 21. Key verse right in the middle of the passage I've been assigned. And it is the key verse for this morning. For me, Paul says, to sum it up, to live is Christ. More on that in a few minutes. And to die, wow, that'd be really cool too. That would be gain because I'd be with Jesus. He says, and then he begins to get in this little debate in his mind. And he begins to think, well, if I had the opportunity to choose, have you ever thought if I were God <laughs> and then I got to decide whether I lived or died, I don't know which I'd decide. It'd be really cool to keep on doing ministry and planting churches and blessing you all, the Philippians and others, by my ministry, getting the opportunity to expand the gospel, tear down the kingdom of darkness in the hearts and souls and minds of people until I die. But to be with Christ, wow, I don't know which I'd pick. If I'm going to go on living this body, this will mean fruitful labor for you and for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body He's, he's not bragging. He's just stating a fact. I want to continue to be a blessing to other people. Convinced of this, I think I'm going to remain. I think God's going to let me live through this. And he's right. 
He's prophesying accurately at this point. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ, that's an interesting phrase, will abound on account of me. I didn't key in on that phrase while I was prepping for the talk until this morning. So I'm going to go on a little mini tear just a minute. This is not on the Bible app, not on the slides, but it made me think of an Old Testament verse that I like to quote to myself because I'll confess one of my sins. I'm not going to confess all of them here this morning, but one of them is I'm a little too confident at times in my own strength and ability. I don't suffer from low self-esteem. Okay? I'm virtually impossible to offend. Lee and others know that well. And, and I don't mind even being made fun of. So I struggle at times, if you don't suffer from low self-esteem, with a little bit of this thing called pride and independence. And I'm thinking I can just get her done by sheer force of will and hard work. And those are good things, not bad things. Sheer force of will and hard work. But I struggle with that at times, and I'll confess it. And I have to remind myself of Jeremiah 9, 23. Here's what, Jim, it's okay for you to boast in. Paul says, boast in Christ. The Old Testament saints put it this way. God speaking through Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. Let not Jim or anyone else, Paul, you fill in the blank because of your education, because you're an American and you make lots of money, because you're good at sports, because you're good at music, because you're good at whatever, don't boast of your wisdom, your strength, or your riches. Let the one who boasts boast of this, that they know me, that you're connected to me, that you understand my ways and my value system, that I am the Lord who executes or exercises kindness justice and righteousness on the earth, for in this I delight. I thought about this morning. Why would God say that? Much of the Bible, I didn't come to know this until about 25 years ago, is a lover paradigm. Does your wife, guys, like for you to say wonderful and kind things about her? To brag to other people about her? Guys, do you like your wife? Admit it. To say to other people, I love my husband. He's a good guy. And affirm you in front of other people. Even those who don't, of us who don't need a lot of affirmation, we like that. Well, God is a lover too. And he wants you to say good things that, by the way, are true about him. And exalt him and magnify him. That's part of worshiping God. That was a little mini tear. It wasn't scripted. Let's go back to Philippians now and make some comments on the rest of the text. 18b, the word rejoice. I'll start at the first verse. Paul has learned to trust God in the apparent disappointments in life. Now, let's be honest. He doesn't always do this. I'll look at a case where he didn't in a few minutes have an emotionally wonderful response to persecution. And you're not expected to either. But we must learn to trust God well in the small disappointments because there's some big disappointments that come in life. Paul was human. He was subject to getting down at times like all of us. Let me give you an example if you want to feel okay about your own times if you're struggling with depression. 
2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. Another time when Paul's gone through an undisclosed, really, period of suffering. We don't know exactly what was going on. But Paul says, I want to confess this. I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we, meaning his ministry team, experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure it. Every commentator says the same thing here. He literally means emotional or psychological depression so that we despaired of life itself. Have you ever despaired of life? I have. I won't go into details. We went through a hard time in year 25 of our marriage. And, and there were some days I just wanted to hit the exit button. I wanted out, not of the marriage. I just wanted to be out of the mess, out of life itself. Paul's saying that. So if you're struggling with depression right now, you have a friend in Paul, but still the goal ought to be to rejoice in Christ. Indeed, Paul says, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened again. Listen to this. We might not rely on ourselves, but on God who can raise the dead. And he goes on in that passage to thank the Corinthian church, just like he's thanking the Philippian church for their prayers in the letters, saying it was your prayers that got us through it attributing his deliverance in that situation to their prayers, just like we seem doing in Philippians. Verse 19, the first part. Again, through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit, literally Paul is tying the supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit at this point in his life at least to the intercessory prayers of other believers. Don't miss this important point. That's why Paul is always asking in his letters for prayer. He's not just being religious. He is coveting and begging for prayer. It's a powerful statement about intercessory prayer. He's saying he, his, his circumstances are better when Christians pray for him. Prayer changes things. If Paul wasn't too proud to ask for prayer when he had trouble, we shouldn't be too proud either. We should pray for each other. We'll have an opportunity to do that at the end of the service. Second part of the verse 19. What happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Again, actually he's quoting Job here. Job was even in more dire circumstances when he uttered these words, but he's quoting Job. It's Job 13, 15, and 16. Job, of course, is near dead. <laughs> uh, he is covered in boils and sores. He's outside of town, probably at the garbage dump. His friends are all around him. They've got bad theology, and they're, they're looking for the sin in his life. Boy, that's comforting. And, and, uh, and all of his kids are dead. God has allowed them to be killed. I don't understand all of that, but it's a terrible situation, Job. His wife, she just said, curse God and die, Job. Wow, <laughs> that's a wonderful, blessed mate. And, and so Job has nothing left. And he screams out this, though he, many God, slay me, though I die, I will still hope in him. I'll surely get to defend my ways to him someday. Indeed, this will turn out, Job said, for my deliverance one way or the other, if I die or if I'm restored to hell. And like Paul, for a season, Job will be restored to health and his fortunes restored and all that. Verse 20, ashamed. 
It literally means disappointed. Paul's not concerned about being ashamed. He's saying, God will not disappoint me. He won't let me down, whether I live or whether I die. A few years later, shortly before his execution, Paul uses the same phrase, and it's the same way it should be translated disappointment. 2 Timothy 1.12, he says this, that is why I am suffering as I am, yet this is no cause for shame, but it literally means disappointment. Because why, I'm not going to be disappointed in God's what he's saying, because I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded, Paul says, that he is able and convinced that he is able to keep the things that I've entrusted to him my whole life (laughs) until that day when I stand before him and he blesses me with eternal life and rewards me for my labors. Verse 21, again, the key passage, break it down into two parts. To live is Christ. Paul is saying, that the reason I'm alive, the reason I believe, when I'm making tents, when I'm sleeping at night, when I'm eating food, when I don't have enough, when I'm being beaten, when I'm in chains, when I'm preaching the gospel, when I'm whatever, all of my life, 360 degrees, 24-7, my existence derives its meaning for my relationship with Jesus. He recognizes, too, that being alive is a gift that he must steward well 360 degrees, 24-7. Early application questions in this sermon began to think about, what are you living for? What are you living for? How are you stewarding the gift of life that God has given you? Is Jesus the actual center of everything that you say and do and think that ought to be your goal every day? Here's how Paul puts in another letter to another church, the church actually in Rome. Romans 12, one and two, you know the verse. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's calling, in view of God's mercy, Jim, to offer your body daily as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Not just singing passionately to God. You ought to do that too. Not just giving your tithes and offerings, but everything. Offer your day as a living sacrifice to God. Then you'll be able to test and approve it for God's will for you. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. That I live for him. I ought to be able to make that statement too. To live is Christ. John Eldridge wrote a book. About 20 years ago, it's my favorite John Eldridge book called Waking the Dead. He was wanting Christ followers, among other things, to be, as Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 8, spiritually alert and aware that we have an enemy that is seeking to steal, kill, destroy, and to seduce us. One of those tactics is to seduce us, especially in the Western world, with the things of this world trying to get us to live for those things that do not matter and will someday, as Paul said, burn up. There's a really tough but popular set of videos. One of them's an hour, I think one of them's two hours. I watched bits and pieces of that, about an hour, hour and a half this week, those two videos. Probably a lot of you have already seen them. 
If you hadn't, I'd encourage you to look at them, but be ready. <laughs> they're rough. They're hard. They bite. They're entitled sheep among wolves. They're the story of one of the fastest growing church movements in the world today. It's taking place in a very strange location. It's actually the most persecuted, probably, or one of the most persecuted Christian churches on the planet today. Many of the leaders of this powerful God movement are women that either have been raped and tortured and imprisoned because of their faith or under constant threat of it. It's the church of Iran, where Christianity, believe it or not, is spreading like wildfire, like it did in first century Rome, but under even harsher conditions. I'm going to quote an Iranian male church leader when he was asked a question about the Western church and what he thought of it. And he responded, not judgmentally, but very sympathetically. It has bite to it, and it's very relevant. He said, I think that much of the Western church, that's you and I, have fallen asleep to a satanic and demonic lullaby, and they need to be, as Eldridge stated in his book, awakened. So I want to review, now switching horses, back to something a little lighter. Paul's own word, what he said he was living for, and that you and I should be living for. You could spin this a number of ways, but let's go to the very center of it first. It's called the gospel. He said this to another church at Corinth, a more messed up church apparently than the church at Philippi. It's 1 Corinthians 15, three through five. He said, what I received on that road to Damascus when God got my attention with that blinding light, what I was told later by other believers that happened back there, here it is. It's the gospel. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5. What I received, I passed on to you, the Philippians and the Corinthians, of first importance. This is first things. That Christ died for your sins. Not a popular way of expressing anything today in this culture that everyone's okay and we can't accuse anyone of being a sinner. According to the scriptures, it was written about for thousands of years before by hundreds of people that Christ would come and suffer and die. That he was buried in a real tomb, not some metaphor or cosmic allegory. That he was raised on the third day from the dead, literally on a Sunday morning, according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas or Peter and to 12, and then he goes on to say more than 500 other people as well. We'll look more at this concept of what it means to live for Christ in just a few minutes. But what about the next phrase, to die is gain? Paul had absolute confidence that when he died, which he would in a few short years after he wrote these words, that he would be with Christ. He said earlier in 2 Corinthians 5 that his body and our bodies were like tents. We're just sojourning or traveling through for 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 years or maybe less for you. It's a temporary dwelling place our body is. And to be away from this body or to die was to be with our Lord in an eternal, secure dwelling place. Jesus said it this way. 
number of verses about this, but here's one, John 10, 28. I always like to fill my name in the blank. Whether it's an indictment or a promise, these words in this book were written to you and I. Jim, I give you eternal life. Wow. And you will never perish. And no one, no one can snatch you from my hand. That's a great thought. Now, going back to Job for just a minute, whom Paul quoted. Somehow, and I don't know how, 1,500 years before Mary had a baby boy, that was the God-man, the second person of the divine trinity. 1,500 years before Jesus would walk this earth, approximately. A long time before the law was given. A contemporary of Abraham, Job was. Somehow Job grasped all of this. God revealed it to him. I mean, he had faith in it. And he said this in Job 19, 25 through 26. A few years ago, Gal wrote a song, Nicole C. Mullins. With the first phrase, I know Job screams out again outside on that garbage dump about to die. He thinks, I know that my redeemer, the one who will buy me back, the one who will pay for me with his own life. I know that he's alive up there somewhere that someday he'll come to the earth. In the end, he'll stand on this earth. After my skin has been destroyed, literal translation, after the worms have eaten my decaying body. Yet, in my flesh, I will be restored, and I will see God. That's why Paul was able to live without fear of death and make the statement he really meant to die is gain. Okay, we have lots of examples in this congregation of people that are not first century church planners or even today paid religious professionals or not on staff at here or any other church, get literally make that statement about their lives for me to live as Christ. I want to go back to that statement for the rest of our time. I thought about a lot of you this week. I thought about, and I don't have time, or I would have done it, bringing three or four of you up here and letting you share your story, what it means in your life to live as Christ. And I ran through a whole litany of people, and I prayed about it, and the Lord said, you've only got time for one, Jim. So I've picked one out. A very ordinary young man. He's not really ordinary, but he is in what he does. And I want him to head this way. It's Braden Kell. Most of you don't know him. He is a public school teacher. And I want him to answer some questions about what it means in his life to live as Christ on a daily basis. So Braden, come on up here. You don't have to turn anything on. If you hit any switches, it'll mess us all up. So. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, I got you. Tell, tell us a little bit about yourself first. Uh, my name is Braden Kell. Um, I am a uh, educator here in Northwest Arkansas. I'm a teacher here. Um, this is my third year teaching in the area. This is my ninth year teaching overall. Uh, my wife and I moved um, from Searcy, Arkansas, um, went to Harding University. My wife went to Harding University, and I taught the first six years at Harding Academy. So very different experience for me. Um, educationally as far as teaching goes and moved here. My wife and I first moved to Rogers two and a half years ago and then we moved to Fayetteville um, about a year ago and now we, we bought a house. We live in West Fork and yeah, 
We've been at New Heights for about two years now. Okay, you're you're the FCA. Most of you, FCA stands for Fellowship of Christian Athletes, but the term has changed a little bit now. They, they incorporate not just athletes in the school programs, but it's called FCS. So you're the FCS leader at a middle school. That's a Christian club that meets when? Yeah, so um, I, I, I kind of use that phrase interchangeably, FCS, FCA. So FCS, Fellowship of Christian Students, FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I try to use FCS more because it just sounds more inclusive. But anyways, we, 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 we use both at different times. So yeah, so this is my third year teaching um, in Northwest Arkansas, and there had been an FCS club that existed before I got to the school that I'm at, um, but it had kind of died off, did not exist, and so there was nothing in place um, when I had jumped on board at this school um, two and a half years ago now, um, and I just felt very, very convicted by the Lord um, to just to start one back up, and uh, and that actually started and. I'll, I'll just kind of throw this in here before we keep going. But it kind of started with when I first got to the school in, in Northwest Arkansas, um, and I don't think I could come up with this on my own, I'm, I, and I'm, I'm confident it was the Holy Spirit prompting me. Um, I, and I, I don't have a lot of experience with the supernatural side of God. I know God uses it. Um, but I had a, a picture or a vision of revival breaking out at, at the school I teach at. And I can promise you, in my first year of teaching two years ago, it was the opposite of that. It was a really, really hard year. There was a lot of things going on. There was a lot of disunity in the student body, a lot of disunity, even uh, with the faculty. But anyways, God gave me this picture two and a half years ago that was, I'm going to break out in this school. You're going to see things that you've seen and heard of in the book of Acts, and my spirit is going to move through this school, and you're going to see students disciple students, you're going to see students baptize students, and you're going to see students even maybe baptize teachers that don't know me. And I've held on to that, and I've prayed about that, and um, I have been through seasons and been through months and months and months of um, just taking one step at a time and, and trying to obey God in that and pray into that. Talking about prayer, God, God is looking for us to pray big. Amen. He's waiting for us there's something, there's something about God. He doesn't need us. He doesn't depend on us. But there's something about him that he wants us in a way to, to partner with him so that he can be activated. And so he's like waiting on our first move. And anyways, I'm just, it's just such a joy to partner with him in that. And I'll talk more about that here in a little bit. So let's, let's skip to this broad question. I want to know what's going on at your school because you hinted at something there, and there's some big things going on in your school. But so how do you, as a 21st century American public school teacher, a middle school teacher, husband, Christ follower, try to live out what Paul modeled and taught as a first century church planner when he said to live is Christ? Uh, one day at a time, for sure, because... Um, if I, uh, I got in the habit a couple years ago of, of really, 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 really being disciplined in my, in my quiet time with the Lord. And, you know, I have to constantly also remind myself that I can't earn this. This is not like, I'm not proving myself. And one thing God's been doing too through the years with me is he has just been reminding me and showing me truly and truly who I am in him, my identity. That's foundation first. 
And I think something that's really powerful, and sometimes we miss it, is one of the first things, or the first thing God says to Jesus after John the Baptist baptizes him before he even does, Jesus does anything in his ministry is he says, this is my son and him I'm well pleased. This is before Jesus even begins his ministry. So he's already pleased with Jesus, right? And so identity is foundational and God's been doing that with me. Um, And so it's been easier to step out knowing that I know who I am as a son. I know who my identity is. And it's a dependency every single day for me. And it honestly um, just depends on the day. And it depends on um, what I feel convicted that God is calling me to do in that day, in that moment. It could be as simple as I've got sticky notes on my desk and I've done this for years, even before the supernatural side of God has kind of come forth at the school I teach at. But um, I've done this for years where I have a sticky notes at my desk and I'll just write just encouraging notes to kids. I'll write encouraging notes to, to teachers. And I just, you know, Paul's given, Paul says we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, right? That's our job, that's our ministry. It's easy, easy to pull out the trash in people because we all have trash. Everybody's got something they're working through. Everybody's got something they're, they're dealing with. But what's hard and what the Holy Spirit gives us authority to do or one of the things he gives authority to do is to call out the good and the gold and to bring that out. And, and people are able to walk in that. And it can be as simple as writing sticky notes. God's using sticky notes. How awesome is that? And that's a normal thing, but it's, it's supernatural too. So, so it just well, depends. I'm on, on it. Don't miss this. I'm looking for specifics. How do you live in Christ on a daily basis? You said two things that are powerful. One of them, you spend a significant amount of time alone with God on a daily basis. Call it quiet time. Call it whatever you want. Yeah. You're doing that at, that's a discipline in your life. Mm. Secondly, you're encouraging proactively other people. I need to hear that because I'm not a natural encourager. Some of you are. My wife is. Lee is. Others of you are. I'm not a natural at it. And so you are proactively encouraging people in a very specific way at your school on a daily basis. Now keep going. That's two. Yeah, yeah. And I don't always do it perfectly for sure. And, and, and again, every day... <laughs> I have to allow the Holy Spirit, I have to allow Jesus to remind me who I am in him because I don't do it perfectly every day. And it's really, really easy. The more we kind of walk in this thing and the more we step out, (laughs) it's real easy to hear the temptation of, well, now it's up to you. Now it's up to your power and your goodness and your effort. And that narrative never changes. You're still free. I'm still free. We still have an identity rooted in him. Those of us who have said yes to him and those of us who are, are in Jesus, we have that identity. We can do this thing freely. And it's okay if it looks weird. It's okay if it looks different. Um, and it's going to look different for all of us. But yes, it's, it's, it's a daily thing and it, it just depends. So what sure. else are you doing though? Okay, so, um, so FCS, FCA has been going on for the last two years now. So this is I guess we're, this is coming up on the end of two years where it's, it's, we've started back at, at this. And we, we've generally been doing it once a week. And um, t- typically in order to have 50 or 60 kids even show up, we got to bring donuts. Because donuts, <laughs> donuts bring, brings in, it brings in middle schoolers, it brings in elementary kids, it brings in high schoolers, food brings in, co- I mean, we, you know, we go to things because of food. That's just kind of the way we're made. So anyways, nothing wrong with that. So, but I will tell you that at this point, and there's been some pretty wild stuff God's done the last couple of weeks. At this point, the donuts are not drawing the kids to FCS. <laughs> Jesus has drawn them. And it's been unbelievable. 
It has been unbelievable. So praise before, God. Before you get to the supernatural yeah. part of this, yeah. which I'm most excited about, don't miss the blue collar part of this. Yes. He started a ministry at a school. That is basic hard work. It requires discipline. It requires getting up earlier. It's meets before school, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. So you got to get there earlier. Yeah. He goes and buys enough donuts to feed 50 or 60 people. Yeah. He, he gets volunteers, by the way, needs some more if yeah. you're interested. Yeah, and this year, in, in, in that, this year has been harder because of COVID. And I, you know, I wasn't sure what FCS was going to look like this year with COVID. And it's, it's, it's been interesting, you know, at least, at least when the school year started and even then around winter or so, I just, I just kept hearing and kept feeling very convicted by the Holy Spirit. Just keep going. Just be consistent. Just be consistent. Just be consistent. I know that you're not seeing a lot of fruit right now, but just be consistent, be consistent, be consistent. And so I just kept showing up and obeying in that. So one step at a time. Keep, keep going. So, um, so thank, thank God for the opportunity, you know, even from a legal side that FCA or FCS is a thing, right, in public schools. Amen. So, um, so kids choose to come. So legally, that checks the box, right? Um, it's non-instructional time. Legally, that checks the box. So um, even as a teacher, I, I can be as bold as I want. I can speak as much truth uh, and be as bold as I want. And so praise God for that opportunity. In the last couple weeks, <laughs> God's been confirming this vision that I had a couple years ago. And I actually had a dream a couple nights before it happened. And I don't get dreams very often. And I know God can use dreams, but I I don't really have a track record of um, feeling like God speaks to me in dreams, but God confirmed this was from him. Because a couple nights before, some kind of wild stuff happened. I I had a picture in my dream, it's an actual dream in, in sleep, where kids that I had in class were being touched by God. Like the physical supernatural presence of God. And it just, it, it, yeah, I mean, just the kind of book of Acts kind of can't really explain it, like that kind of thing. So anyways, in the last couple weeks, there have been, um, God has given me the opportunity, praise God for FCA, thank goodness. Um, but the last couple weeks, God has given me the opportunity to pray over about a hundred kids. Individually. Individually. And every single one of these kids experience the presence, and I would even call it, I mean, everything God does is supernatural, so we, I don't, I don't, I don't want to make this seem elite. I don't want to make the supernatural seem elite because it's not. It's just one way God touches, one way God draws people. God draws people by sticky notes too, by the way, and, and, and we talked about that earlier. He, he uses anything. He's God, right? But anyways, 100 kids or so each got an opportunity to pray for them, and every single one of them had some kind of supernatural encounter. Many of them... <laughs> This is so weird. It's so cool, though. God is so cool. Many of them had felt physical presence, hands on their shoulders, around them, hugs. Some felt, this is weird, right? Some felt physical warmth, tingling in different areas of their body. Whatever their experience was, and they were all different. Every one of them was different. And some of them, I got to pray for them more than once, and they even had a different experience than the previous time. But every single time, what God was showing them, because it's from the same source, every time God was showing them who he is, just downloading it on them supernaturally in an instant, showing them that he's the Prince of Peace, showing them that he's the one they've been looking for their whole life, but just haven't found, and that he loves them. And it's meant to draw them, right? And I, and I kept using this analogy that what he's doing to you is he's giving you really, really, really good food, like just a taste, and he's saying there's so much more. I want to invite you to more. And so, praise God for the supernatural amen. and the amen. natural because he does amen. it through all of it. Amen, amen. Yeah. 
And there's there's more too to that. But yeah. There's more, yeah. but we don't have time yeah. to hear all of it this morning. Yeah. But the bottom line is this man's been faithful for eight or nine years to live as Christ. And now God is allowing him to see some of his reward, as the Bible says, in the land of the living. And there's a movement of God happening in the school. And kids are coming to Christ. And we had to furnish Bibles this past week to help him with Bible. And he needs help because lots of kids are coming to Jesus and there's a God movement going on. All right. Anything else? Last words. Last shot. Uh, I, I can say that God's just starting. This is just the beginning. And we've seen um, other, other stuff that's supernatural. We've seen, I've seen ankles get healed on the spot. I've seen knees get healed on the spot just by being prayed over. And God, again, God's just inviting, he's planting a seed. And, um, yeah, I, we can use any help that we can. Um, I, and, and if it's just praying, it's not just praying because what you're doing when you pray for us, for this, for this awakening in public schools, this awakening in this country is you're activating God. You get to partner with him in that. So that's not a small thing. But if God is putting something on your heart um, that um, is, is different than prayer or prayer in something, listen to that. Listen to that. And I don't know if it's you have access to a lot of Bibles that we could use because I, I feel very convicted that this thing is just starting and there are more and more kids that are being drawn to Jesus and they're wanting more and they're going to want Bibles and this thing is just taking off. It's just getting started. And this is a microcosm scale of what God is doing to this country, to his Amen. church, and in this nation. This is an exciting time to be alive right now. Hey, it be so. Mm-hmm. All right, brother. Go get him. Thank you. Yes, sir. When we have our prayer time in a few minutes, uh, some of the group around him gather and lay hands on him and pray for him. Pray for his protection and for more anointing. Close this way. 21 years ago, on a gray, damp field outside of Memphis, John Piper preached his most famous sermon to 40,000 college students. It would later be named, Don't Waste Your Life, or the Seashell Sermon. Piper challenged the American narrative of the good life. He highlighted the death of two elderly American women in his own church. One was a retired doctor and the other a nurse. They were in a car wreck the week before in Cameroon and were killed. The women had spent a lot of their lives sharing the love of Jesus through medical missions to the poor of Cameroon. He contrasted the women's death to an American couple he'd read about in a magazine that had retired in their early 50s and were traveling in their boat around the Caribbean, playing softball and collecting seashells. He asked the crowd that day, which was the real tragedy? The death of the women in their service to Jesus who had lived old, that one of them was 80, the other one was in her late 70s, who had lived godly lives and administered their whole life, or the lives of the couple that were spending their retirement collecting seashells. The sands of your life and mine are slipping through the hourglass as you're sitting here this morning as I'm speaking. What we do, what we say, how we spend our time and our money, reflects what or whom we're living for. Some of you that are hearing this little talk, not all of you, but some of you may need to wake up. As Eldridge and that Iranian prophet said, learn the demonic lullaby. You've been lulled to sleep. Shake yourself 
and shake the cobwebs off and the dust and start living for what matters. Let me put on the prophet's mantle just for a minute. Start having spiritual conversation with coworkers. Start discipling your friends, your children, your grandchildren. Start praying fervently and ferociously. Start tearing into the Word of God, not three days a week, but seven days a week, at least for a few minutes every day. Start worshiping God with your heart, soul, and mind, and your will. Start hating the demonic sin patterns that are left in your life that you've coddled and tolerated too long. Start participating with the Holy Spirit of the living God and tearing down any of the devil's work in your life. Consider asking God if he wants you to give up this week, this year, some of the stuff you've been clinging to and simplify your life. Or maybe start using that stuff in a way that blesses other people. Start developing disciplined habits of righteousness like Braden talked about in your life. Start getting up every morning and getting on your knees and screaming out to God and begging Him to fill you with the Holy Spirit of the living God today with the fire from heaven. So that you too can truly say, as Paul said, as Braden can say, as many of you can already say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you don't know Jesus like Paul did, like Braden does, like many of us do, then I invite you to find him that way. Go to someone on the prayer team. Prayer team, if you start coming on up and scattering out around the room right now. If you want to be baptized this morning, we can take care of that. If you want to pray with someone though, or if you want to go pray for someone, even a total stranger, go do it. If you need a resource or a tool, we've got those notebooks that Susie Eller and I have worked out. It's just one tool to help get you closer to God and in a more disciplined, deeper relationship with Him. There's seven life habits of a Jesus follower. They're available in the back. If you don't have any money, just take one. They're 10 bucks if you've got it. Let me pray for us right now. We'll continue engaging God in worship. But I encourage you, and then this little 15 minutes or so we've got left, consider even after their service is over, praying for one another. As Paul begged the Philippians and the Corinthians and others to do for him. Lord Jesus, thank you for this powerful testimony we've heard of you moving mightily in a public school. Thank you, Father, for praying. I pray blessings on him. Bless each one of us so that we can truly say for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. In Jesus' name, amen.